Christmas at the White House. All those musicians, that was better than what I saw on TV. It was awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, here comes the time of reckoning. How many of you are ready for Christmas? May I see your hands? Oh, that's miserable, okay. <laughs> How many are you not ready for Christmas? You got a lot of shopping and stuff to do? Okay, is that your pattern? Is that what you do every year? Okay. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, but uh, we still have till Wednesday, so there's a little time to redeem yourself if you need to. But we've been in a three-week series on Christmas before the manger. And we've been looking at what was in the mind and heart of God and the prophets 700 or so years before Jesus was ever born. And Nathan came out of the gate speaking on Isaiah 7:14 that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And then Pastor Chris was up next week, uh, last week and he was speaking about Micah 5, 2, and this ultimate world ruler that would come to be born out of Bethlehem, and that great talk that he had last week, my text, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. He's talking about this God-child who would become the final world ruler, establish his forever kingdom, characterized by justice and righteousness, a truly bright spot in Isaiah when there was such darkness before the prophecy and after the prophecy, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But as I looked over Isaiah in context, I saw how dark and gloomy it was, and they were not laughing at anything back in those days. It was so bad. So I thought with all this doom and gloom, maybe we should have a chuckle as we start today. So I pulled a few cartoons. I'd like you to see them. The first one, the snowman, the rabbit's got this hair dryer. Okay, nice and easy now. Give me your nose and don't do anything stupid. <laughs> Apparently he did because they're having a funeral for him in the next one. See the bucket? Oh, poor guy. Okay. I like this one. The next one. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but I really prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> and this one I thought was a real hoot. Oh, great, a flat. And so we laughed this morning. There's not nearly as much darkness as there was back in Israel's day. But they weren't laughing because it was such a difficult time. They thought they'd never pull through. They thought it would be dark and gloomy forever and ever. Hallelujah, amen. And God had other plans and he was going to send some hope. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase, the dark night of the soul. That phrase originated back in the 16th century out of the Catholic mystic tradition and over the centuries has been kind of taken over as a general condition of the soul when things are really bleak. The dark night of the soul is a period of spiritual desolation suffered by anyone in which all sense of consolation is removed. And so maybe a person hits a real bad tragedy and it looks like they'll never get through it and it's so bad that no hope is in their forecast at all, and they would call it the dark night of the soul. Israel, 750 B.C. and environs of time were in the dark night of the soul, and they were so afraid that nothing good would come their way. And so Isaiah brings a word of hope in the middle of the context of deep darkness. And I'm going to ask you to stand as I read this passage from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, also in the Pew Bible. And I recommend that you keep some form of the Bible open uh, while I preach because there's a lot we're going to learn today and a lot we're going to refer to as we look through this text. 
page 573 in the Pew Bible, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, it'd be really nice and our gift to you if you'd take that Bible home if you don't have one, and uh, that would be our gift to you this Christmas season as well. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, but, and when you see all this darkness, here comes the hope, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, this prophecy comes some 750 years before the birth of Christ in a deep, deep darkness in Israel's life. A people who had no hope, especially this was the northern kingdom. Judah would follow suit some centuries later. Now we're on the other side of things now, and, and so we have a lot more light and a lot more hope. But today, whether you have no hope in your life, maybe things are really bad and fouled up. Or maybe you're in a good season, you have hope, and, and things are, the lights are pretty well on. doesn't matter where you are. This big idea will apply to you equally today. It's a message of hope. And here it is, the big idea of the passage. Jesus, this child, is the only one who can lead us well. I want you to understand there's been hundreds and hundreds of leaders throughout the centuries. They couldn't do it. Jesus will be the only one that can lead Israel well, lead the nations well, lead the church well, lead the family well. And he is the one we look to today. And so we want to look at some of the reasons why only Jesus can lead well. Reason number one why Jesus is the only one in history who can lead us well is human leadership by itself is the pathway to trouble, verse 1. If all you have is human leadership and human intuition and the genius of mankind, it may go well for a while, but it's going to end up in a bad place. That's the history of the world. And this little segment, of the verses that we're looking in, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, is tucked away in this darkness that leaders have tried and have failed and have brought darkness upon them. So chapter 8 is a chapter of deep darkness as Israel's about to fall under judgment by Assyria. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 come, a ray of light, and then chapter, verse 8 comes of chapter 9, and it's back into the deep darkness and gloom all the way into chapter 10. It's painful to read it all. 
So I want you to see the historical situation going on here in verse 1. It says that the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were plunged into darkness, and they are standing for the ten tribes of Israel. Because you see, Naphtali and Zebulun were the, four, the, 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 the most uh, northern of the tribes. They were the first ones to fall. 732, when Tiglath-Pileser III came in, and he took those two tribes first. And then over the next few years, they made their way through the other tribes, and by 722, all of Israel fell to Assyria and were taken off the stage of history from that time forward. Now you need to know something about the leadership through this dark period. Israel, the northern kingdom, Zebulun Zebulun and Naphtali falling first and the rest of the kingdom by 722, had had 19 kings. And they were all bad, not one good one in the bunch. And then it talks about um, Assyria. And we find out that under their leadership, here they come in and God is going to use Assyria to punish Israel. And then God is going to punish, it says in chapter 10 and verse 12, the arrogance of the king of Assyria and take out Assyria. And what we see here is this common theme. Whether it be Israel with their 19 kings or Judah, the southern kingdom, with their 20 kings and only six of them were good kings to some extent and they fell to Babylon in 586 B.C., None of the kings of Israel, some of the kings of Judah were good, but most of them bad. All the kings around the nations of Israel were bad. And they were leading the people away from God at every hand. And so God is going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to show the world that human leadership by itself will not work. It will always lead to trouble. And that is the theme that we see throughout history, the theme of failed human leadership. And it goes on in the ancient world. God took out the leaders who failed in Israel and in Judah. And the kingdoms that would not bow their knee to God, all the great empires God had to bring to their knees against their will, kingdoms like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. No leader was there able to lead the world into the kind of place that ought to be with righteousness and equity. It just didn't happen. And so you get to Rome. What happens after Rome? Let me take you through that a little bit. The history of failed human leadership. The Byzantine Empire couldn't do it. The Ottoman Empire. The British Empire. And what about the more modern era of history? The era of Russia and Germany, China and the United States, king after czar after president. We are still in a colossal mess. We're waiting for solutions that men cannot bring to this world. And the one common theme is that no one in history has ever been able to lead their country or to lead the world into economic well-being and peace. Rather, poverty disease, crime, war, immorality, selfishness, all those kinds of things exist, and it's getting worse. And no leader or league has ever been able to solve the issues, and I can guarantee you, neither will the Republicans or the Democrats. It's going to take more than that. And if the history of the world shows us anything at all, it is that human leadership by itself will always lead to trouble and always fail to accomplish lasting peace and prosperity. It will never be able to bring solutions and ultimately the kingdom of God to this world. Never. And so here we are in verse 1. 
in the middle of what Isaiah is calling the former time. 750 B.C. and that time period, the former time. Isaiah says that God has brought the land into contempt. That is, into crisis, punishment, darkness, gloom, and doubt. And all the kings of Israel failed miserably, and so did the people with them. And that's the situation we are in in verse 1. It is indeed dark and dirty. So let's look what God does. In the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this gloom, God offers hope. A little ray of hope through Isaiah the prophet in seven verses. And he sends this word, and now he moves from what he called the former time in verse 1 to the latter time. The time when God is going to bring what he wants to bring to this world to fruition. And it says that God will dispel the gloom and the anguish. And it says that the major international trade and troops movement route, that verse 1 says the way of the sea. History books call it the Via Maris. That will be made glorious and there will come through that very traffic route the day of peace and prosperity and harmony in that day like the world has never seen through this child. And so Isaiah launches this prophecy of hope in the midst of darkness and I want you to see two interesting things about his prophecy here in verse 1. Not only verse 1, but all the way through verse 4. The prophecy of future hope and the kingdom of God is stated in the past tense. It's not that it will come, it will come, it will come. It's that it has come, it, it was done. And why is that? Because in the mind of God and Isaiah, it was as certain as though it had already happened. And friends, it still hasn't happened. And it's still in the past tense. This is going to happen in the mind of God. It is sealed. It is certain. It is history. The second thing I want you to see about this prophecy is not only it is so certain, it's stated in the past tense. I want you to see the ray of hope connected through Naphtali and Zebulun. Well, those two tribes are called out to stand for all of Israel and its difficulty. Guess where Jesus the light shows up in his childhood and in his early ministry? In the region of Naphtali and Zebulun. This is the region of Galilee. And so the prophet is saying, not only will you have hope, this Savior of the world, this King of kings is going to come to Zebulun and Naphtali in that day and you will realize the truth and the reality of what's going to happen. He will finally solve the problem. And all of this was given through the prophet to give hope to Israel who had no hope. Now remember the big idea of the sermon. The big idea is that Jesus is the only one who can lead us well. And the reason that I want you to see, first of all, is because human leadership always leads us into trouble by itself. And the only hope for this world is for Jesus to do what no other human leader has ever been able to do. And that is finally bring lasting peace, prosperity, justice, and righteousness to the world. Are you ready for that? I am overdue. I cannot wait until that happens. But there's a second reason why Jesus is the only one who can lead us well. It's because God is going to do something for this king that he's done for no other king. Reason two, God himself will prepare the stage for the reign of Christ, verses two through five. God is going to get the world ready for this king. God has not done that for any Caesar or for any president or for any king or queen or czar, but he will for this king. He will for this child. 
And so verses 2 and se- through 7 are written like a beautiful poem or a beautiful hymn. And verses 2 through 5 set the stage for the future reign of Christ in our world because God is going to set the stage for this world leader. Now the first question we run into is in these early verses is who is the you in here? Who is the one doing the action? As you go through this, oh, see what's going to happen here? There's only one answer. Only God himself will set the stage. There's nobody else who's going to do that. God himself will set the stage for him who will one day rule the world in righteousness and justice. And so we're going to go verse by verse to see what he will do to set the stage for this child, Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in that day to come. In verse 2, we see the people who were walking in darkness. It says they have seen a great light. Not they will see. They have. It's, It's so certain. Who are these people? Well, we found out that God is taking the action. Who's he taking the action on? Who are these people that were walking in darkness? Well, you've got to go back to verse 1. It's the people of Israel. We know that because the prophet is coming to Israel. But if you really want to seal the deal, you can find it in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 4 through 12. Because Matthew is quoting this very text I'm in today, Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. And he's speaking of the coming of Messiah to Israel. And not only does he tell us who the people are, he does us another favor. Matthew identifies the light in verse 2 that we're talking about. The light has come to the people in darkness as none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so this prophecy we have in Isaiah is to Israel. The prophecy we have in Isaiah is about Jesus Christ who came to be the light to the world. Now in the midst of this anguish and despair, we go to verse 3. And verse 3, Isaiah no longer sees a nation of Israel that's being depleted and overrun, that their population is diminished and they are in captivity. Now he sees a populous nation. He sees a rebuilt nation. He sees a, a nation not in sorrow and gloom, but in joy. And so in this verse 3, he sets up two experiences that Israel really enjoyed. When, when they had these things happen, they were plunged into all kinds of joy. The first was the joy at harvest, it says. And when the harvest came in, they knew they would be well taken care of for another year. God's hand was upon them, and they were dancing and making merry and having a great time of joy because the harvest was so good. And they knew what it was like to have famine and no harvest at all and the misery that went with that. And so they were joyful. And then it talks about a second experience, is that when they would win in battle, And then they would divide the spoils, how joyful they were, and how great it was to have a victory. And by the way, this word joy is a major staple of Isaiah. He uses it 25 times in his book. Joy, he loves joy. Who doesn't love joy? I had to think about the illustration of joy coming out of darkness into light. When one day, I stepped on an elevator at Hammett Hospital in Erie, and I was doing some pastoral calls, And I got on, and the elevator was full of joy because this one guy was saying to his friend, I can see, I can see, I can see. He had just had the bandages removed from his eyes. And he had been blind for years, and they did a surgical procedure. They took off his bandages just moments before, and he's walking around. I can see. And this prophecy by Isaiah is like that. They've been walking in darkness and now they're going to have the joy as in harvest, as in battle victory. I can see it's no longer dark and the joy that flooded their soul. 
because God was up to something. And so we move to the next verse. The next verse is telling us what God is doing in verse 4. He's going to deliver them from their oppressors. Not just from Assyria, but anybody who's oppressing them even in the latter days. God will be the one who brings them out of their servitude, brings them away from their oppression, takes them like an animal in a yoke out of their yoke, and they are now set free. Now, don't miss Isaiah's point. He's saying God's going to deliver. Israel will never be able to do that. And he says, as in the day of Midian. Do you know what the day of Midian was? Let me set that for you. God is trying to drive home the point that when Israel is set free and they get their new king, it will be an act of God completely without the ability of mankind to do anything. And so in the day of Midian, remember Gideon? Gideon was going against the Midianite army of 135,000 people. And Gideon only had 32,000. Remember what God said to, to, to Gideon? Too many. Get rid of all those people and bring them down to how many? 300. And so with 300 people against 135,000, they won the battle. But who won the battle? It was God, and God is saying to Israel right here, in your darkness, I will deliver you. You will have nothing to do with it. It'll be like in the days of Gideon, I will bring you through. I will destroy your oppressors and bring you into complete victory. And he goes further into verse 5 as he sets the stage, God the Father for this child. He says, every boot and garment of war would be burned. And Israel would have understood that to mean all the implements of war would be gone forever. And the victory would be so overwhelming and so lasting, there would never be a need for war materials and implements ever again. Won't that be neat when that day comes? I'm so sick of all the war. By the way, we're into a new war. Don't you know that? The cyberspace war. Won't be bullets and guns. It'll be sabotaged through the internet and stuff. Days of war. Can't wait till it's over. And he comes again. How complete will this victory be? It'll be total and thorough as he moves through the darkness to light. And so listen, my friends, in, verse, in these verses, God is showing Israel that he will set the stage of history for this child. He will set the stage of history for him like no one before him or after him because he is the only one, this child, who will do what no other can. And so he, the father, is getting ready to set the stage to install, as Psalm 2 says, his king in Zion on his holy hill in Jerusalem and Jesus. This child will rule Israel and the world like no other because God set the stage for him to do it. And I believe as the signs of time in the scripture are being fulfilled even in front of our eyes that God even now is setting the stage for this to happen. And I can't wait. And so that leads us to reason number three, why Jesus is the only one who can lead us well. Reason number three, why? Because no other person in history can do what Jesus will do. They all failed. He'll be the only one to succeed at his mission. And no other one in all of history will be able to do what Jesus will do. Now here comes a surprise in the text. We see that God is getting us ready for this world leader, and you're expecting maybe as I that we would get this angel to come down. 
We get this warrior to be dropped out of heaven somehow and take over the earth. Or you might expect this conqueror to come or a hero governor sanitized version of Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that. We don't get that. We get a child, the deliverer of Israel, and all that God's going to do in the final days. We're going to have the delivery system through a child to grow up and to become king. And God would overcome the darkness by this little baby boy. But let's just remember, this ain't no ordinary child. He is fully God in fully human flesh. And I think about all the ways of God that he would bring about what he wants to bring about starting out with a little boy. And so we're going to see three important aspects of the child emerge in verses 6 through 7. And these aspects should bring you to your knees in submission and worship. And what we're going to see, first of all, is his person in his names and then his work in the government and the timing of the prophecy when it's going to happen. So let's look, first of all, at uh, his names. But before we do that, I want you to know that verse 6 is where I got the title of my sermon. It's called The Child Prodigy. And a child prodigy, I went to the dictionary, and here's what it is. A prodigy is someone whose talents are recognized at an early age. An unusually gifted or intelligent young person whose talents excite wonder and admiration. And if there's ever been a child prodigy... It is this child of Isaiah 9 and verse 6. I also want you to know, we're going to look at his names in just a few moments, but you need to understand in the Bible that a name or a title of God or people was descriptive of their essence, of their nature, of who they were, of their identity. And so we are going to see the identity through the names and titles of this child. And it is exciting. So what about his person? Who is he through his names we find out? First of all, Isaiah says, this one to come is a wonderful counselor. Now, please understand there is no comma between wonderful and counselor, like the King James Bible or like Handel's Messiah, wonderful counselor. No, it's wonderful counselor. It's one unit. And what it's saying here in that word wonderful is that he is a wonder of wonders. He is awesome. He is incredible and glorious in and of himself. Just to be near him, you will be overcome with wonder. And not only that, it says with all that wonder is this infinite, limitless, unprecedented skill in wisdom and knowledge. And what we will have for the first time is this overwhelming personality of a king who will know everything with wisdom and he will have no need of advisors. The first king, president, czar, and queen or king in history never to have an advisor because he is the chief and incredible counselor. Now I want you to know something. Even though the wonderful counselor has not been installed as king yet, the wonderful counselor is revealed in the word of God and you can know him and his wisdom right now. Wonder of wonders, incredible wisdom, and bow and submit to him right now as wonderful king. As you go through the scriptures, you'll find who he is. It is awesome. You don't have to wait until the end. The second name is Mighty God. Do you know that there are some liberal theologians who want to take away his godship from this name? And here's what they say. This is not a title of deity. This is a person who is a mighty God-like hero. So we have here 
supposedly Isaiah said, and you're going to get a mighty God-like hero, but it's not going to be God. Uh-uh, uh-uh. This is a name for God in battle. The mighty God who will conquer all the armies of the world. And where do we see this happen? Revelation 19, do you see that text? When he comes on that steed, that incredible horse with a sword out of his mouth, and he takes out all the armies of the world and the beast and false prophet and Satan with him. <laughs> the mighty God in battle. He is victorious. Woo! Are you worshiping? The next name is Everlasting Father. Well, at first glance, this seems to be a problem. Wait a minute. We have the Son, who's also the Father. Isn't that a little heretical? Let me tell you what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew literally says the Father of eternity. Mighty God, Father of eternity. And just as he will be a king, he will be a father, a shepherd. He will take care of his people forever and ever. Like a father who will take care of his children. He's that kind of person. He's not a mean despot. He's the father of eternity. He'll take care of us as a father from now on and forever. And the fourth one, the Prince of Peace in Hebrew, the Prince of Shalom. This child will be the first child in history to bring peace. Peace among nations. Peace of God to man. And peace between man and man. And peace to the human soul. It's never happened before, but it will happen then. The first time since Adam's fall. I mean, does this sound good to you or not? This is who we're talking about. This incredible child will finally be peace to a troubled, war-torn world. And not only will all conflict be removed, but the cause of it, rebellion and sin, gone forever, and peace will come. He's going to get it done. Now, what will he get done? That leads me not only to his person, but to his work. Do you realize all that Jesus does in his work for us? He's been our Savior, our Creator, our sustainer, our intercessor, our shepherd, the list goes on. But you know what his big work is that lies ahead? His big work is great leader of the world. That's where we're headed. So in addition to Savior and Creator and all these things, he is also going to be our great leader. And he will grow up to be the King of Kings, Lord of Lord. And verse 6 says the government basically of Israel, and the world will be on his shoulder. And verse 7 says, it will be a large and forever kingdom. In other words, we know now it's going to be populated with millions and millions of followers in that kingdom. And the child will sit on the throne forever, the throne of David as the rightful heir, having come through the prophesied line of David. And for the first time, for the first time, we're going to have what the world has never seen before, a government whose foundation is righteousness and justice. I mean, think about the government of Christ versus the governments of, these world, of this world. In the government of Christ in those days, no more corruption, no more bribes, no more kickbacks, no more sex scandals, no more foul language when the mics are turned off, no more drunkenness at political parties, no more oppression, no more tyranny, no more torture, no more war, no more laws that violate the heart and standards of God. Are you ready for that? That's what's coming. And now when, aspect number three, the timing, when will this happen? 
Because it's been 2,700 years since Isaiah said it, and it still hasn't happened. Is it going to happen? Let me tell you three things. Number one, when the prophecy came, they thought it would happen in those days, and they thought Hezekiah would do it, but he didn't. And so they relegate it to a future child. And 700 years went by, and the next wave happened when Simeon and the angel Gabriel and John identified the light as Jesus Christ. And then they began to think, and so would you and so would I if I were there, ah, this is the child who was prophesied, and now he's going to break the back of Rome and will be set free. And that didn't happen. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and it still hasn't happened. Let me tell you what's going on. Isaiah couldn't see the gap that we now see. And when the child was born 2,000 years ago, it started the clock ticking. Because a lot of things had to happen between the birth and the setting up of the kingdom. Christ had to grow up and have his ministry and die. The church had to be born and go worldwide. And all the signs and the prophecies had to happen. There had to be a gap. And he is coming. And you're saying, well, it hasn't happened. Maybe it won't. Let me close the chapter. That is the text on verse 7. What is the guarantee that it will happen, that this child will establish the government upon his shoulders? Do you know what it is? It says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord. Do you know what's writing on that statement? The reputation of God, the word of God, the purposes of God, the promises of God. If it doesn't come through, our faith has been in vain and we are all gone. We are all lost. I want you to know the guarantee that this will happen, that this child will grow up, that the government will be on his shoulders is guaranteed by the jealousy that is the zeal of the Lord. Do you believe that? That's the faith we have because that's the firmness of the scriptures as it's prophesied in that day of darkness. Okay, I'm all wound up. Let me land the airplane. I proclaim to you today the prophecy of Isaiah that a child would deliver people from oppressive darkness and someday rule the world in justice and righteousness, something no other leader has ever been able to do or will ever do. But let me apply it to where we are right now. So what? Maybe you're in darkness today. Maybe your life isn't going too well. Maybe you're in rebellion and sin that maybe like Israel was and God is working in your life to discipline you. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, that's coming. What do we do in the meantime? Remember, Jesus said the kingdom has come. It's among you. It's in your heart. It's in your midst. We don't have to wait until the end day. We need to bow the knee now in worship and submission before him, not wait until he's installed as king in the end time. We do it now as the people of God. And so right now, I'm going to ask you to do something in a song we're going to sing. Actually, Chris and Rebecca are going to sing it. We're going to ask you to do what the words say. In worship and submission, to fall on your knees. And I'm asking many of you who are prompted, as in the first service, to fill this whole front on your knees. To fill the aisles on your knees before this king, bowing the knee. The one, this child, upon whom the government, on his shoulders, it'll rest. And so right now, as they sing, at any time during the song, as Dallas is doing right now, as I'm doing right now, to come to the front and right now, install him again as king in your heart as you worship him and submit to him in your heart.